We're taking a break this afternoon from our study in Luke to consider a text from Acts chapter 10. So if you have your copy of God's word, please turn in Acts chapter 10. We'll be reading verses 34 to 43. And as a way of some context as you're turning there, uh, this is a passage that comes just after a pair of visions. One vision given to Cornelius, a Roman centurion. And in his vision, he sees alms, offerings that he is presenting, and they're uh, called acceptable. The Lord tells him that, that he has accepted this offering. But he still needs to hear the gospel. So the Lord instructs him to send for Peter. And likewise, Peter had a vision, and you all know of this vision. It's the one where the sheet comes down, and he is told to rise and to eat from all of the animals on this sheet, because nothing that the Lord has made is unclean. And so Cornelius sends for Peter. Peter comes to Cornelius' home, and Peter comments that it is totally against custom for a Jew to enter the home of a Gentile. But Peter comes in, and Cornelius asks, what message do you have for us? So our passage this morning is that message. It's what Peter speaks to Cornelius and to his family. So before we come to our text and study together, won't you join me in prayer one more time as we ask his blessing. Gracious Lord and God, thank you for the message of your gospel. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for faithful eyewitnesses like Peter who you called to share this message that we might have it today. So Lord, would you press on us the need to know and believe in the resurrection. So we ask your blessing again on our study this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of God as we read it in Acts chapter 10. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Sins, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing to it as we study together. Now, in recent years, one of the most uh, sensational theories or conspiracy theories even that uh, has gained some notoriety is the flat earth theory. 
In fact, this idea has become so popular and it's been around so long that people have joined and had time to think about it and study and then have left. So one online forum asked the question, former flat earthers, what made you change your mind? How did you come to, to put that belief aside? And so one user responds that he joined the Navy with the intent to find out whether the Earth really was flat or not. So as he finally got to sea, he was on a ship, he began charting their speed and their course by himself, absent from, their, from the instruments on the ship in case that was all part of the scheme. So he charts this himself and he comes to the conclusion that the turns that they were making, the speeds that they were going, and the length of time that they were at sea that the Earth could not be flat comes to that conclusion. So one of his superior officers finally takes him topside, hands him a pair of binoculars. He says, you know what our next destination is. You know how far away we are. You should be able to see it with these binoculars if you look through it. So sure enough, he puts the binoculars up to his face. He looks out, and he sees no land in front of him. He had come, in a sense, face to face with the reality of the world. And we've all had similar experiences, perhaps not quite so extreme as to join the Navy, but we've all uh, had expectations that are different. When we come to that reality, it's different than what we imagined. So as we come to our text this Easter Sunday, we read of Peter and we read of Cornelius coming to the reality of the resurrection. How fascinating that Peter's vision of the sheet of animals uh, coming down before him would, in his next thought, his next message to a Gentile would be connected to the resurrection. So this morning, we're going to begin looking at the reality of the resurrection. Then the glory of the resurrection and then the hope of the resurrection. And please be aware, uh, we're going to take our text a bit out of order. Uh, so hopefully our outline uh, as we consider it this morning, uh, will keep us on track. So again, the reality of the resurrection, excuse me, I got them out of order the first time, the reality of the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection, and then finally, the glory of the resurrection. So the reality of the resurrection, it begins much like our sailor charting his way around the globe. It begins with an eyewitness account. Peter saw the risen Lord. He saw Jesus after his death, after his burial, and after his resurrection, he ate and drank with Jesus. Verses 40 and 41, God raised him on the third day and made him appear not to all, but to those who had been chosen as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Peter is an eyewitness to Christ after he was raised from the dead. In fact, Peter almost can't stop talking about the fact that he saw Jesus with his own eyes. In Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Later in Acts, when Peter's arrested for preaching the gospel, part of Peter's defense to the council is to say, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, and we are witnesses to these things. And so if we're honest, 
I, I think that we don't understand how important it is that there are eyewitnesses. We can sometimes think of the resurrection as something ethereal, in, inscrutable, unknowable, or at the very least, something we're content just not to ponder or understand until perhaps we've died ourselves. But friends, the resurrection was real. People saw Christ after he died. They ate with him. They spoke with him. They drank with him. And we can almost forget that Christ had a body the way that sometimes we think about it. And perhaps in our hearts we're a bit like Thomas. Thomas who gets a bad rap for saying, unless I see his hands and I see the nail marks and I put my hand into his side, I won't believe. He gets a bad rap. He's often called Doubting Thomas, but Christ never calls him that. In fact, uh, just a few days later, after Thomas has made this declaration, Jesus shows up and Thomas is there, and Christ simply offers him himself. He says, Thomas, see my hands, see my side. There's no indication that, that Thomas ever did touch Jesus. But Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God, and Jesus asks him this question, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. So sometimes we find ourselves like Thomas before he encounters the risen Lord or, or like Cornelius, not able any longer to see Christ. We haven't put our eyes on him physically, but there are those who have Suppose you witness a hit-and-run accident in a parking lot. Uh, a big red SUV is backing out of a parking lot, and they hit a small sedan, and you're the only one around to witness. The car drives off, so you go and you look at the car, and there's a dent, and there's red scratch marks, and you can see the effects of that accident. So the owner comes out, and you go up to the owner and you say, I saw it. It was, a, it was a red SUV. There's the dent. I saw it. Now, the owner of that that sedan isn't going to say, oh, no, that's, that's not real. That, that didn't happen, right? No, you'd want that statement for insurance. It's the same with Christ and the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection is that Christ did indeed rise in his body. God raised him up. Many people saw him. Peter saw Christ. This is not a myth or a cleverly devised story. This is not something that we can ignore. We have eyewitnesses telling us that they have seen Jesus after he died. And today we still see the effects of the resurrection. We see his church grow. People come to faith, believing in the hope of our risen Lord. The resurrection is a reality whose effects are still being felt today. And that reality should shape our very lives. This begs the question of how. How then can the reality of the resurrection shape our lives? It's an event that happened over 2,000 years ago. How can that change us today? Now, of course, if you're a Christian, you believe in the resurrection. You believe this, but how does it actually make a difference? Well, it begins with death. What dread and terror we feel when we think about death, when we come close to death, and rightfully so. It wasn't meant to be this way. Death was not the plan. And so death is 
looming over us. Because we know that at any moment we might slip from this world. But with the resurrection, the promise of life to come, the fear of death is reduced. Death and hell have been conquered by our risen Lord, the one who never sinned and yet became sin for us, the one who submitted himself to death, even though death held no sway over him. He rose and conquered. And so if you belong to the Lord, you will rise to everlasting life with him. That's for death, the end of your life. But what about today? The resurrection promises that whatever you're going through, it's not forever. Whatever pain and sorrow and torment you might be facing, whatever so big and pressing on you at this very moment, the resurrection promises it is not forever. We have in the resurrection the promise of the Lord. The promise from the very beginning that all of creation will be put right. That you and I, through the strength of Christ, can endure. So the resurrection offers us this hope on a daily basis. Yes, hope for tomorrow, hope for the next day, and for years to come, but for today. Hope that our sins can be forgiven and that the pains that we're enduring are the pains that we're enduring are not forever. But the resurrection was not the only work of Christ. It was not his only ministry, not his only ministry that had eyewitnesses. The disciples followed Jesus day in and day out for a couple of years. They saw his work, they saw his miracles, they saw in part the hope offered to everyone through the resurrection. So notice how our passage begins and how our passage ends. Verse 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And our final verse ends with this statement that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins in his name. That's why Christ came, is it not? That we might have forgiveness of sins with him. Christ came to proclaim the good news of God that we can be reconciled to him despite all of our sinful wickedness. That God's promise that the dwelling place of God is with man, that that promise can be fulfilled. That is why Christ came. So we've already talked about the reality of the resurrection, but it was God's perfect design and his will that Christ should go to the cross and be resurrected for the forgiveness of of sins. It was real, but it was also necessary. It was necessary to give us hope. You know, Christ prayed in the garden that if possible, remove this cup. You know, if there were any other way besides the pain of becoming sin, of the perfect Savior who lived a perfect life, fulfilling all the law of God, that if there were any other way that we might have forgiveness of sins, if there were any other way that God's will might be fulfilled, can we do that? There was no other way. 
So Christ was obedient, even unto death on a cross. And all this he endured that he might bring the promises of God to God's people, canceling the record of debt and nailing it to the cross. So our hope is that our sins are forgiven, and they are. If you belong to Christ in the hope of being saved from your sins and the hope of being saved to life with Christ eternally is fulfilled. Some of the beginning of this passage uh, in our context tells us of Peter's hesitancy and even stepping inside a Gentile's home. But after the vision of the sheet, he's convinced that God shows no partiality. Yes, God chose Abraham to be a father of God's chosen people of Israel. But we're told in Galatians that the children of Abraham are really those of faith. Those who believe in Jesus, those are the children of Abraham. It's through Jesus that this promise, that the hope of blessing, the the blessing to all nations that's promised to Abraham, it's through Christ that we have this hope and this blessing and the forgiveness of sins. It's only in Christ that that is made complete. But our hope doesn't end there. And so even though you may belong to Christ and your sins might be forgiven, still we look around at the world and we, it's not right. We can look around and know that not everything is yet the way God wants it. We're told creation groans with eager anticipation for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, but because of him who, su- who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is groaning. So we use the phrase, to be in heaven with the Lord after we die, and rightfully so, because if you belong to Jesus, that is where you will be at death. But our ultimate hope is that our sins will be forgiven and also that all of creation will be put right. We look forward to a new heavens and a new earth. As N.T. Wright puts it, he says, our hope is not in life after death, but our hope is in life after, life after death. And what he means by this phrase is that to only hope to be in heaven with God when we die falls short of the total and glorious redemptive work of our Lord. God is forgiving the sins of his people, but he will also put an end to all evil and to all sin, and he'll create a new heavens and a new earth where he can dwell with his people. All of creation will be put right. So those are the two great hopes of the resurrection, aren't they? That our sins would be forgiven, And that's how our passage ends with the promise of forgiveness, but not just sins, but also that all of creation will be put right. The reality of the resurrection is that it it happened. It's a factual reality that should shape our lives. It's a hopeful event for which Christ is ever to be praised. But the resurrection also shows us the glory of Christ. So we get this first hint that Jesus was glorified after the resurrection when Peter speaks of his authority. In verse 38, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then in verse 42, he commanded us to preach 
and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Christ had been anointed. He was anointed at his baptism, of which they too were witnesses. He was given authority to judge the living and the dead after the resurrection. Christ was no longer bound to earth. He was no longer subject to death, but he was raised up from the dead as a conqueror. And all this points to his majesty, to his glory, his divine and resurrected nature. So, of course, as it's mentioned, we first see his glory at his baptism. There he's anointed, told by a voice from God that this is his son. There were eyewitnesses there. There were eyewitnesses to his miracles. There were recipients of his miracles. And Peter was an eyewitness to these things. He was also an eyewitness to the transfiguration, where again that voice tells them that this is God's son. Peter writes in his second letter, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we are witnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says that he saw Christ's glory. He heard the voice declare that this is God's son. He saw it in a way that few this side of heaven ever have or ever will. But the resurrection was the fullness of Christ's glory. As glorious as that moment on the Mount of Transfiguration must have been, the resurrection was greater. In fact, this is what Christ prays for in John 17. Before he goes to his death, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. Christ prays for his own glory that even in his death he might return that glory to the Father. This might seem strange after the transfiguration where Moses and Elijah appear with him and they saw Christ shining with God's glory. So when Christ was raised, he wasn't raised in the same way that that Lazarus or Jairus' daughter or others had been. When they were raised, they died again. But Christ was raised never to taste death. His glory in the defeat of death, just as we're told in verse 38, that he was opposed by the devil. His glory in defeating the devil, defeating death, is greater than all of the miracles that he had performed. As Paul's uh, letter tells us, that without the resurrection, our faith is in vain. Without the resurrection, we are still in our sins, but oh, the glory and the beauty of the resurrection. Yes, Christ went silent like a lamb to the slaughter. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted, and by his wounds, we are healed. But Christ did not stay on the cross. He died and was slain there for us, and so he is the lamb who was slain But in his resurrection, we must remember that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered. 
He is the king who by right can judge the living and the dead. He is the anointed one whose kingdom will know no end. His coronation was not an elaborate ceremony, and no one was actually there to see his body come back to life. His victory parade, as we we heard several weeks ago, was cobbled together with palm trees and coats rather than laurel wreaths and red carpets. But his crowning glory was his victory over death, his rising from the dead. If you don't believe this, Peter reminds us of his witness and the witness of all of Scripture. He reminds us in the final verse of our passage, back in verse 43, to him, that is to Christ, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It's not just Peter's witness, but all of Scripture points to Christ. All the prophets bear witness to Christ and his work of forgiveness. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, we have access to God. Christ's own righteousness imputed to us. It's to such an effect that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sinfulness, does not see our wickedness, but he sees Christ's own righteousness. He is a righteous, glorious judge. Hebrews tells us that in these last days, he, that is God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So today we take a moment, a moment out of our year, out of our normal preaching schedule, we take a moment to remember the reality of the resurrection, to remember the hope of the resurrection and the glory of the resurrection. These are not just for today, though. We meet each Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, the day on which Christ was raised from the dead. So each Sunday, we gather to commemorate this most excellent, most glorious, most hopeful miracle. So remember today, and each Sunday, and each day in between the reality of the resurrection. Let the hope of the resurrection dwell in you and then come again and again to worship the glorious risen Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you that he came, was faithful and obedient even to death on a cross. Thank you that he was raised from the dead. Because without that, our faith is in vain and we have no hope. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the resurrection. Remind us each day and each moment of the reality of what happened. The hope that we have because of the resurrection. And help us to worship our glorious, risen, living Savior. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.